You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. Welcome to episode 148. And uh, and we got a good guest today. We gained today. a few episodes there. We, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're recording a little out of order. recording in the future. We're recording out of order. But um, but this was someone, we mentioned Bill Young a lot yes. on this. He was a, a guest at least once. 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 Yeah. And um, he's been one of my mentors for a long, long time. Basically, I call him Uncle Bill because he was my uncle. He he. Stayed with us when he was working in the area at one point when I was a little kid. So, um, and he's just a lot of fun. Now I get to see him interact with my I, son. I could see him being a very fun uncle. Also very fun. Yeah, he's going like crazy, letting him jump all over the place and climb all over him. So I think he's just a, a fun uncle type. Yes. So, um, but he emailed us twice actually, and uh, and said, "Hey, you got to have this guy on. Uh, he's doing some really really cool stuff out west. I want him to come back east." And um, so he gave us uh, the contact info from Mike Curran, who then, uh, I think before I even had a chance to reach out to you, Mike, you found me at a trade show. <laughs> and then we were like, oh, yeah, I'll send you an email, I think, the next day or something like that. So we're really happy to have you on to kind of talk about what you've been doing and some of the papers you wrote and um, specifically what you've been doing out west in Wyoming. Sure, yeah. No, I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad I, I got to meet Bill Um Back um, from New Jersey, I got to meet him late last year, and then yeah, he, I'm glad he put me in touch. And yeah, well, it was funny seeing you at that trade show. Um, I just saw your name tag in Highlands Nursery. I'm, I think that's the guy Bill always talks about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, and I just I was working. This is the New Jersey Nursery and Landscape Association trade show, and I was just working in one of the educational sessions. And it's uh, it's the plant track, and it's a lot of stuff from like Bailey's and Proven Winners and. Stuff that's interesting. It's good to know what's going on and see the marketing that's behind it. But it's a little boring at the same time oh, for me. Oh, so I would just dip out and I'd start talking to my friends who are on the trade show floor. And you just happen to walk by when I was talking to Daryl Kabeski, who's also yeah. been on the podcast. Yeah, a lot of what we see at those trade shows are really out of our world. Yeah. Like, so it's it's a real eye-opener for us sometimes walking back into it just to see what's happening. Yeah. But Bill had mentioned to me, and then you actually included one of the emails um, as you were listening to an episode – uh, and I don't want to spoil it because you have a re- really unique story and uh, that how you got into this field. And we usually do this at the end, but I want to do yours at the beginning because I think it's, uh, like I said, it's it's something that's going to, people are going to find interesting. So how did you get into the field of ecology? Yeah, um, I went to University of Delaware initially as a biology education major thinking I, I lifeguarded on the beach here in New Jersey and you know, at age 17, I thought I'd be a high school biology teacher in the school year and lifeguard in the oceans in the summers. Um, that sounds like yeah, a good plan, st- actually. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I, I wonder about why I deviated from that. But uh, my my sophomore year in college, Delaware had these trimesters, um, and I did the study abroad out in, in Fiji where we didn't have any internet. I came home, and my parents told me they got a letter from Delaware saying that I wasn't registered for enough classes. This was before everything was, you know, all online registration. And my dad put me in this class. It was a 600 level 
PhD level entomology class called behavioral ecology at insects with um, Doug Ptolemy, who I know has been on your show. And you know, at first I, I wasn't too happy about it. And then, <laughs> you know, it, his logic was, well, I could have put you in genetics or I could have got you in, in that <laughs> class for your biology degree. So it wasn't that bad. Um, and yeah, that wound up actually being, like I could still probably recite Doug's first lecture almost verbatim. He was one of the best, if not the best college professor I ever had. Um, and then, yeah, after about a month in the class, I was performing well in it. He asked me to be his field tech, um, for a lot of the work that wound up leading up to his book, bringing nature home, which I'm sure, you know, that's kind of the the Bible for native plants. Um, so yeah, my sophomore year through my senior year at Delaware, I I was working with him, uh, planting native plants versus non-native plants all over Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, um, he's really the, the, the guy that taught me how to do research and got me into it. I, I went in thinking, you know, who cares about insects or something that, you know, people burn with their magnifying glasses. And then I learned how important they were. And, um, I graduated Delaware in 2008 and, you know, one of the worst times ever to graduate. And, um, I moved down to Virginia and just traveled around with a, a band for a year or two, came home. I was working at Barlow's, the plant nursery in Seagirt, New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Um, growing and selling um, plants for retail um, and then applying for environmental consulting positions. Every, everyone said you need a master's degree or five years experience. So I didn't realize that I couldn't figure out how to get five years experience without a master's degree. Um, and just thinking about really what I wanted to do. I, I thought with, you know, Doug Talamy is an entomologist, but I think he'd really call himself a restoration ecologist and, I just started Googling master program and restoration ecology. I wound up first Montana state used to have a program called land rehabilitation. I thought it was interesting. I talked to a professor out there and um, basically told him I'm really an applied person, not, not really somebody that does the theory side of, of science all that much. And he said, Oh, you got to really go down to Wyoming. The university of Wyoming is doing the most applied large scale real restoration stuff out in the West. So I, um, I talked to a, a guy out there who ran the Wyoming reclamation and restoration center named Pete Stahl. Um, and yeah, about three weeks after I, I talked to him, he sent me an email and said, Hey, I just got this funding come across my desk. If you want to take it, you've got to be out here in, in about 15 days. So I went <laughs> in and I told Stephen Barlow, Hey, uh, here's my two weeks. And then I packed my car up and, and drove West. So yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. It's it, it. You ever think back and think how amazing it is that maybe one lecture changed your life? Like, yeah, it, it's, it's so wild. I mean, it, it was just such an interesting um, talk. His first lecture was about evolutionary psychology and he, he made all these analogies of how, how insects are actually super interesting and, you know, how the human brain works and other animal mm-hmm. brain works and, and all this stuff. And, um, yeah, it, it was wild. It was really cool. My, my junior year, he actually, um, came up to me one day, I was planting a bunch of plants out on one of his plots and he, he just said, Hey, I got this, this study of broad gone in Costa Rica on tropical habitat restoration ecology. And I, I haven't announced it yet, but I saved a spot for you. So, you know, that switched from entomology really into, to restoration ecology. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, if it wasn't for that, I, I honestly probably would be a, a 
high school teacher or something like that right now. But instead I, I went the graduate student route and, um, yeah, out West, I, I got to work actually with a bunch of oil and gas companies throughout grad school and, um, kind of see and hopefully help a little bit that process of moving from like reclamation as compliance towards really habitat restoration, mm-hmm. um, on these sites. So yeah, certainly very thankful for Dr. Talamy and, um, yeah, I mean, thankful my dad didn't put me in genetics, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes I, your parents do know best. Yeah. <laughs> I, I found that out, too. But I, what I appreciate about that entire story is your openness to just go. Like, how many people would have – like, I look back at my life and, and knowing, you know, before, you know, at the start of my career, I had the opportunity to go to California, and I didn't do it. And I think back, I'm like, what would have changed? What would have the trajectory been had I made that move? But it sounds like you were just very willing to to go for those things, which is a hard thing to do. But I guess at the perfect age to do it. If, if yeah, anything. Um, yeah, certainly I was I was young enough and no, you know, significant other or kids or anything at the time. So um that made it easier. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I initially thought, you know, worst case, this is two years and I was getting paid to get a master's degree. So I, I looked at it that way. I didn't think going into it, it would turn into a, a PhD and, um, you know, I'd, I'd be out there for as long as I was, but, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. So, so you, you go out to Wyoming and then you stay and what, what keeps you there as, as, you you progress um well uh, wyoming's a a really beautiful state i kind of think new jersey and wyoming in a lot of ways are like the two most opposite opposite states like this the most densely populated state versus the least densely populated state Mm -hmm. um a lot of differences it it really took me two years to kind of get used to the pace of life out there and um you know somebody at the person at the coffee shop asking me how my day was I was like this is like really how how people work out here I guess this is kind of cool um yeah my my master's was actually funded by BP the oil and gas company and what what they wanted was a data system to help them improve their reclamation and restoration practices um at the time they were one of the biggest operators in the state of Wyoming they had 4,000 five acre well pads and the, the Wamsutter natural gas field, which is the largest onshore terrestrial gas field in North America. Um, they had a couple hundred in the Jonah field. So what, what I wound up doing for them, I was started to take all of their, you know, data from their consultants and any, any sort of information I could get, I just to try to figure out what they were actually doing for reclamation and what the whole process was, um, so, so basically, you know, when they're developing a, a gas well pad, they are stripping you know, on average about five acres of soil and stockpiling that soil, punching a hole in the ground. So they, they've got to strip that soil just to level out the ground for all their construction equipment and everything. Um, when they remove that, they then put about 75 or 80% of that topsoil back on the site. So they just where that hole is, they, you know, they cap that with a tank to, for storage. Um, and then they just leave basically enough space for a vehicle to get around, um, that tank. And then, you know, the other three quarters of the pad goes into 
reclamation or restoration. Um, so I started building this data system out, taking field notes, taking, um, finding records of what seed mixes went down on these sites. If there was herbicides sprayed on these sites and, um, were there soil amendments and, um, anyway, I, at the time, um, I was using a dark GIS platform. So I was trying to make this all into a map that I could visualize where everything is and track all this data. Um, and what, what BP wanted was basically a formula of the next time we have to develop a site, what seed mixes are going to work for us. Um, or what soil amendments should we use if we're in this soil type and this kind of precipitation regime or whatever. And in 2012, I was, I spoke at the Petroleum Association of Wyoming has a annual um, wildlife and reclamation conference in December of every year. So I spoke at that. I was going to finish my master's degree in 20 May, 2013. And then I actually had a, an offer with a oil and gas company out there as a environmental supervisor. Um, February, 2013, I get a call from the fish and wildlife service. And they said, you know, we saw your talk in Casper, Wyoming in December. And we have this major endangered species act listing coming up with the greater sage grouse, uh, which is this, you know, iconic bird out in the Western States. And, we're, we're trying to figure out how to incorporate all this reclamation and restoration work that's going on into our decision process. Is there any way you could scale up this data structure that you built for BP um, so we could really see the story ac- across the state? So I wound up driving over to Cheyenne and sitting in these state government headquarters with people from the petroleum industry, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the, the Bureau of Land Management, so a couple of federal government agencies and then state of Wyoming game and fish and department of agriculture and environmental quality um, to figure out. And I said, you know, I, I could scale this up, but my thinking is I don't know all the players I need to talk to. And I don't, you know, sometimes the data is just really messy. So that's um, going to be a problem. Um, about two or three days later, we get a call and my boss stopped in my office and, and said, you know, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the BLM, and the Petroleum Association of Wyoming have said they've got enough money to pay for a PhD if you want to go for that. Um, So I basically put my master's degree on hold for a year. I spent all of, from February through the end of 2013, driving around Wyoming, um, shaking hands, meeting people from industry, trying, you know, saying, hey, I I did this for BP. Can your company come on board? with help from, I think we had a note from the governor of Wyoming. We had notes from the fish and wildlife service and um, from the president of the petroleum association of Wyoming. And yeah, by the end of the year, I had 26 oil and gas operating companies that decided to join this effort. Um, And then kind of just as a formality in 2014, I defended my master's thesis. Um, I had already started PhD coursework. I actually took a semester out of the College of Agriculture where I was in. I went over to the law school um, specific to take in, in environmental law and endangered species law, basically, um, just knowing I wasn't going to read the Endangered Species Act for fun. Um, <laughs> and then I, uh, yeah, I wound up getting to work with all these government agencies trying to figure out how reclamation and restoration fit into the story of 
um, endangered species listing. So more or less, it's just this debit credit system of, you know, disturbance in the wildlife habitats bad, but if you can restore it to, to functional habitat again, um, companies can, and they, they probably should get credit for that. So, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting. Um, and then, yeah, through, through my grad school, I got one of the grants I was on was 50% Audubon, 50% Petroleum Association of Wyoming. Um, and I, I think there was a little bit of fringe money that came in from the Wyoming Game and Fish and the BLM, but it was kind of cool to see. I, I don't, I think that was the first and maybe only time the Audubon Society and the Petroleum Association ever funded the project together mm-hmm. with the a mission to come and save this bird. So it was kind of cool. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, what I was going to say is what did these oh, first, I didn't, I didn't realize how much oil and gas um, industry there was in Wyoming I, up until uh, I, probably a couple a year or two ago. I, now I was going to say like, yeah. you're completely blowing my mind and it's partly out of my own naivety is that, you know, we're in New Jersey and you think about all the classic just history of, pollution or mm-hmm. or disturbance and and contaminants being put down and restoration work that needs to be done to fix that and i think of wyoming having never been there just as this untouched you know pristine land and not thinking about oil and gas industry there um so it's not what i was expecting and and with our you know and without saying who it was like our experience with some of those, not all of them, like we do a lot of work with PSE&G and all the great work that they're doing. But there was a pipeline that was going through New York into PA and we had a large uh, order that was going there and it was really like quick turnaround. And there, we were concerned whether or not we could provide the material on time and the response was, here's a check for the whole thing. Make sure our weeds are ready when we ask for them. You know, And it was like, oh, that's not what we were expecting to, to hear. <laughs> you know, It was just like – we're being required to do this. Just make sure we we have a deadline. Just make sure we get it done. And then I'm hearing you talking about all these companies with a willing interest in doing the right thing and restoring this. So it's just kind of from my perspective, you've just blown my mind. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I was getting at. Is I listened to this other podcast called uh, "It's Your Mountain," and um, it was two guys who used to be. Political. I've actually invited them to come on, and I was just thinking as you're talking about this, and I've heard their, them telling a similar story from the political side. I'm like, oh, yeah, i got to follow up and actually send them a calendar invite so they can come on. Um, but they're basically like legal advisors for uh, Governor Matt Mead, who was governor of Wyoming at the time, and they were talking about the, the uh, oil and gas industry and then how they were collaborating to, to create more – uh, sage grouse habitat um and now we're talking to the guy who was actually doing <laughs> doing a lot of that so it's coming for full circle in my mind for me but i do want to back up a little bit and just talk about what the habitats look like in wyoming um a lot of our we have listeners all over the country but a lot of them are from the east coast and um i've been to wyoming when i was a kid but i know it was significantly different than what we have here in new jersey and and then like a little combo with that is what did these uh, habitats look like before oil and gas came in? And then what do they look like after they did their reclamation process? Yeah, I was actually curious if they were like farm fields or if it was natural areas uh, beforehand. Yeah. Or ag yeah, fields. So, 
Wyoming is a, a super interesting state. Um, I, and it's, you know, the, the mountains are oftentimes pine forests. Uh, there is some deciduous forest out there, not a whole lot. Uh, the rangelands of Wyoming, which dominate the landscape out there, um, are typically sagebrush steppe ecosystems. The eastern part of the state um, is where kind of the Thunder Basin grasslands end, and then it, it switches over into this, you know, rolling hills of sagebrush steppe. So sagebrush is a, a sage-colored shrub, um, and they they call it the, um, the you know, the, either the Great Wide Open or the um, the sagebrush sea, and I do remember, yeah, the first time I ever went riding my road bike outside of, of Laramie, I, I did feel like I was in the ocean. It was just so vast. It was like you couldn't see buildings for miles and miles and miles, and it was this gigantic sea of green. Um, so that's a, a lot of it. In, like, northeast Wyoming, there's a pretty big soybean industry, and a lot of the oil and gas development may be on, you know, retired soybean fields or you know, among agriculture areas. Um after industry, so Wyoming is is the nation's leader in coal production, uranium production, uh, bentonite production. Bentonite is this shrink swell clay that um, is used for everything from kitty litter to backyard ponds to um, you know material to plug these wells after oil and gas is done. They're usually in the top seven or eight natural gas producers in the U.S. Uh, top two or three oil producers. Um, Trona is Trona is the sodium bicarbonate used to make glass. I, th- I think 98% of the world's Trona comes from Wyoming, which is, is mined. Um, but a, a lot of that is going on in these sagebrush ecosystems. Um, and then the, after industry, the, the next biggest, um, you, you know, driver of the economy out there is, domestic livestock and grazing. So even these sagebrush steppe lands, they're not like what you would call consider farmland, maybe in New Jersey, but are, um, are grazed. And roughly just under 50% of the state of Wyoming is federally owned. Um, with the Bureau of land management being the main owner. So a lot of these BLM lands have grazing leases where ranchers will lease out land and, uh, run their cattle through them. And, and what have you. So yeah, getting into that, I, I guess the, the quote unquote reference area that we deal with out in these Wyoming gas fields oftentimes is sagebrush. Um, and as the society for ecological restoration, they've got one of their definitions for a reference site as a, what they call a cultural reference site. So that that would be a site mm-hmm. that's been managed by humans before disturbance came in. Um, so that, that's something that it was always intriguing to me is um, where I did a lot of my work in the, the Jonah field and the Pinedale Anticline gas fields. They're part of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, 70 miles south of the park itself. Um, but those areas have been grazed since the 1870s by domestic livestock. Uh, so you go in there and it, it's like this is the, a lot of old decadent sagebrush with very little understory. And I, I think a lot of that is you know, 150 years of intense ag- livestock agriculture before the oil and gas industry moved in. Um, so w- what's interesting out there, you'll see not in the gas fields per se, but uh, around them prescribed fire is a big treatment to, to knock these 
old shrubs back to try to rejuvenate the understory and get these early successional species in or native grasses and mm-hmm. wildflowers and, and what have you. Um, so yeah, oftentimes, um, what regulations say is you've got to get to a certain percent of, of the adjacent reference system. And I, I always kind of wonder, well, if the adjacent reference system has, you know, maybe been mismanaged, in some cases maybe mismanaged, um, with, you know, just the, the way grazing has happened or whatnot for 150 years before this, this oil and gas disturbance or, you know, what, whatever, um, former disturbance came in. I always kind of question if that's the best reference system. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of looked at, well, what are these people that are doing these prescribed burns trying to do? They're trying to get young successional communities in here. What, um, there's some folks out there that'll call sagebrush a weed and that's cause cows don't eat it. Um, but they'll go in and they'll actually spray sagebrush or they'll mow it. Um, to try to get all these young vegetation communities in. So in some senses, when I'm, I'm looking at reference sites, I kind of look at other practices that people would use to rather than maybe restoration, they would call like rejuvenation or, um, you know, restarting a system. So Mm -hmm. in cases where the soil is stripped and then put back in, I'm assuming that there, that there might be some sort of seed bank in that soil existing, but, like I don't like if it's not all going back or if it's going back at different depths or depending on where it was that may or may not be the case. Yeah. So um, my advisor at, at University of Wyoming was a soil uh, scientist, really, and that was a lot of the work he did prior to me getting there, and you know other other folks at the University of Wyoming and got government agencies, consultant groups, and and what have you was really trying to figure out how to handle this soil and that they have pretty strict guidelines out there of, um, never to, you're never supposed to exceed six inches of stripping, um, when, when you're taking soil off. And part of that is to try to keep that seed bank intact. Part of that, um, I mean, some of the areas where I work like Pinedale is, is 39 frost-free days a year on average with, you know, six, seven inches of precipitation across the year would be a wet, year out there so um it it's not like new jersey where you put a shovel in the ground and you you've got deeper than the blade of your shovel of this black organic matter out there you you might have two three inches so operators are really encouraged to measure their soil before they strip it um try to to not go deeper than six inches in areas where there might only be one or two inches of really suitable growth material um go less than six inches. And then, um, a lot of the, a lot of that stuff is being respread, uh, within just a, the same year usually as construction, if not over a couple of years. Um, so yeah, that there definitely is probably some seeds left in the seed bank. And then the big problem with, with it out there is stripping the soil, disturbing it and respreading it. Um, it breaks up all the organic matter in the soil these native species out there are typically um, they're adapted to, to low nitrogen inputs and to slow moving microbial activity. Um, our big problem out there when we disturb lands, whether it be oil, gas, coal, or, or what have you is the species called cheatgrass. It's mm-hmm. all over the Western U S but yeah. that that's 
nitrogen loving plant that really takes advantage when there's a pulse of nitrogen. So that's one of our, our challenges now. Um, I do a lot of work for the Wyoming abandoned mine land program. Um, and trying to just find native seeds that don't have uh, certified weed free out West can, there can still be a very small percent of weed seed in that those mixes. I with the abandoned mine land program, we have a mandate that we have 0% weeds. Like we don't even want to put 1% cheatgrass on these disturbed sites um, just because that's going to come in and, and really take advantage. So, um, and then, yeah, a lot of it is making sure that the equipment that the, the seed boxes, the tractors and what have you are, are washed off really good before we're moving them. Cause that's, that's where we run into some issues out there is, uh, you know, accidentally introducing some of these non-native weedy species. But I, I think we're getting a lot better at that. Um, that, you know, the more research is out and the more knowledge is, is being shared around. With, with the oil and gas companies, I, I feel like I'm all over the place right now. I'm just trying to like <laughs> bring it back a little bit and focus forward. Um, are they, <clears throat> are they operating on their own to restore this land or is, is this being required of them for what they do? Or is it a little bit of both? It's a little bit of both. Um, so on, like I said, but like 50%, I think it's like 49.8% of the state of Wyoming is owned by the federal government. But if they're on Bureau of land management land, they'll have a set of regulatory policies in place from the, from the BLM. If they're on private land, they have erosion control stipulations, and then they have to develop a plan with that private landowner. Um, and that would just be a land use plan. So, I mean, it, it could be that the private landowner says, when you guys are done with this, I just want a horse barn there. And you guys construct a horse barn and stabilize the soil around it. And you're good to go. Okay. Um, if domestic livestock use is the goal, I, they might want to, you know, not too diverse of a mix of grasses or, um, you know, they, they may want wildlife habitat. So mm-hmm. it'll depend. Um, what I was actually impressed with out there, what was industries funding a lot of the research here. Um, and I, I think part of it was the sage grouse. Like if that bird got listed as an endangered species, um, that would, you know, stop drilling in a lot of the Western States or, or stop land surface disturbance from even being allowed. Um, and you know, the, the government in the, the state of Wyoming with industry and a lot of people at the table, um, NGOs and, and everyone we put in Wyoming together a sage grouse core area, um, policy, which was Dave Friedenthal and then Matt Mead, who you just spoke about Tom and the governor then, and now Mark Gordon, um, but that says there can never be more than 5% surface disturbance anywhere in side of sage grouse core habitat areas throughout the state of Wyoming. So that's 95% of the land has to remain completely intact and untouched, um, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. All things considered. Um, and then the way that that will work is there's a, a cap and a threshold system. So let's say you're at that, you're at 4.9% surface disturbance inside sage-grouse core habitat, which is like 38% of the state of Wyoming, um, which would be, you know, 10 New Jersey's or something like that fit in there. Um, If you wanted to go drill another well pad, you wouldn't be allowed to do that until you could show 
we've removed disturbance and we have reclaimed or restored um, X amount of acres to keep ourselves under that 5% threshold in a different area with inside that same habitat. So that has kind of helped. Um, and I, I can't say, cause I, I came in at this really crazy time when that, that bird was making national news and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't say that in the eighties, the companies didn't care at all, but I, I think it was really went from compliance to like, we have to be better than just compliance. People are looking at what we're doing um, to now. I think, part of it probably with this whole ESG movement that's going on. And part of it, I mean, some of these companies like Jonah energy, who I work with out there, the vast majority of the people that work for Jonah energy are Wyoming folks and they're hunters, they're fishers they're And I mean, they state say right in their statement, like we still want to go hunt elk and antelope out <laughs> in this field when we're done with it, that um, it's, it's kind of cool to see that they're, they're really trying to take care of their land. Um, so I, I think there's some of that too, that, um, it's kind of, you know, how they say hunters are oftentimes the best conservationists and, and whatnot. I, I think a lot of these folks that are working in industry in reclamation positions have range management backgrounds or agriculture backgrounds or, um, wildlife backgrounds. And I, I think that, you know, there is a lot of people that, that really want to put this back as good or better than what they found it. What is, what's cool about it is you can say what you want about the 70s and 80s and even if ecological responsibility wasn't the initial reasoning for some of this, for the sake of progress, the funding was there for all this incredible research uh, to find out things that we know now to better – to do better restoration. So for better mm-hmm. or for worse, it gave us all these tools to be able to do what we do today, which is pretty – Pretty amazing. That maybe wouldn't yeah. have happened. Maybe that funding wouldn't have been there had there been no disturbance. But yeah. <clears throat> you well, know, there's always that silver lining. Yeah, and that's something we talk about on here all the time. Is is uh, there isn't a lot of money behind native plants? Um, <laughs> yeah, and well, well, and a lot of native animals outside of your your bigger game animals because then you get people really excited, like you were saying with. Elk hunters are really excited about elk. You have the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. I'm sure there's other associations. And they have a membership fee similar to what you're going to have with uh, like the Xerxes Society or Audubon's and all that. Although I was was just telling you this morning, I was kind of surprised to find out that Ted Turner owned the largest bison herd mm-hmm. in in all of the world, the largest private yeah. bison herd, and owns two million acres for the sake of. And this I believe herd. there's a, a good portion of that's in Wyoming too. I just looked. It's um, not. It's like South Dakota. The okay. Dakotas that area. Okay. Yeah. Think. Yeah. So. Um, but yeah, there's not a lot of money that goes behind native plants as compared to uh, hydrangeas. There's a lot yeah. of money behind them. So now you have something that there's maybe the why it started wasn't for uh, necessarily pristine reasons. Hab- yeah, pristine re- or habitat creation reasons. It was hey, something we have to do. But now there's like what you're saying, Mike, is this is something that they take a lot of pride in. And now you have money that is behind these native plants in a sense. Um, we're for the, the sage grouse, but you have big corporations that are taking invested interest. That's kind of what the CR, CWRP does yeah. in New Jersey here too, where you have big corporations saying, hey, we want to give back in some way and and um, and fund some of these restoration projects. Some of the most ecologically-minded people I know work for those companies. Yeah, that, that's true. <laughs> that's definitely true. 
So, so you, you kind of answered this question already in private landowners, but are you able to go in for some of these restorations or is, is the goal to make it what it was or do you have the opportunities to make it better uh, than what it was or, or focus on a certain target plant or a certain target animal like the sage grouse? Um, yeah, so I – I don't know that it's ever a target plan. Um, okay. The the grouse has definitely been considered the, the umbrella species of that whole sagebrush steppe ecosystem. And basically, you know, if, if we can conserve that habitat and what, what that bird needs is native flowers and these insects and it, mm-hmm. it needs the sagebrush provides forage for it in the winter months when the grasses and the, flowers are under the snow, which is, you know, a good chunk of the year in Wyoming. And it, in the non-winter months, that's where they're nesting. That's where they're hiding. Um, that's where they're getting, you know, staying out of the heat during the daytime. Um, I always just take it from kind of this ecosystem approach. And I, I look at restoration really as, um, assisted succession. So I, I try to take what, what I do if as a consultant or as a scientist or Usually whenever I'm working, um, I'm big into successional theory and and looking at how plants would get from – or a vegetation community would get from point A to point B. Um, a lot of the times these well pads after the soil is stripped and stockpiled and, and respread, you're starting from scratch with, you know, some seed left. Um, I always saw that the, the policy says you've got to have, you know, 50% um, – cover of the dominant shrub, which is always Wyoming big sagebrush or almost always Wyoming big sagebrush out there. Um, Well, I look at that and I'm like, well, that that shrub's 150 years old. It's been living in, you know, four inches of of rain on average over the last 150 years with a month and a half of the growing season. Um, That's like a, a difficult challenge. And I used to see, a lot of these seed mixes were like super high sagebrush seeds and, and not a whole lot of other diversity because companies were striving for that. And I think that that oftentimes lended itself to letting cheatgrass in, um, mm-hmm. letting halogy in this halophyte, uh, a salt loving plant out there comes in on, on these sites. If the soil gets disturbed, um, if a salt or sodium layer comes in, um, I started working with this guy called Pete Guernsey who used to work for QEP resources. Pete was this biologist from New York state lived out in Pinedale and kind of, he looked kind of like a a mountain man, but um, had kind of like an East coast personality. And uh, he said, you know, I don't, I don't care if if annual plants don't, don't get me rollover, but I I think that they're going to, you know, they'll retain moisture on some of these sites. And I think they're going to do a good job taking care of this um, halogen and, so he's, he actually was really kind of the pioneer of um, let's not go straight for compliance. Let's like, let's try some, something different. And then I, I'm like, you're doing it specific for halogy. And then you're saying, well, these plants grow taller um, than the surrounding sagebrush. So they're like almost like a snow fence in the winter. And then I started looking at them like, well, this is like, this is how succession would happen, right? You have this big disturbance and you'd have these early, um, annual species that take advantage of these high nutrient or nitrogen levels and nutrient loads. Um, so I've been pushing, uh, 
the use of these in, in their seed mixes. This one, uh, the logo of my company is, is Rocky Mountain Bee Plant, but that's this native annual flower that will grow up to six feet tall sometimes in the first year. Um, its seed actually requires a disturbed soil to germinate. Okay. And um, I like that because it, it brings in all these pollinators. It acts almost like a living snow fence. It, it competes with these weeds. Um, and then the, the other thing that, uh, a buddy of mine, Jesse Dillon, he's from Fort Collins. He runs an outfit called Cedar Creek Environmental. Um, he's big now into this evapotranspiration stuff out in these really hot, dry summers of anything we can do to put shade on these plants, um, these old sagebrush and stuff, right the first year. Um, it'll it'll be great. But, yeah, that species will drop out of the mix. Um, you know, we, we have in the, the Jonah field 21 native species that – go into the seed mix with that annual being the heaviest. Um, and then we've got, yes, seven, I'm sorry, no, nine other perennial flowering species in that mix, six native grass species, and then five or six shrubs that mm. also go into the mix. Yeah. Um, so I actually, I, I like diversity. Um, and I, I kind of, um, I like to see a bunch of different flowers and um, I try to make these five acre patches like islands of, Bio, like biodiversity hotspots rather than yeah. trying to grow one thing. Well, well now I'm going to ask you 10 questions all at once <laughs> because <laughs> I've been jotting notes down the whole time. So you're dealing with a lot of restoration and reclamation in, in large patch, uh, patches. We, you know, we were curious about some of the hurdles, but like one of the first thing was you're dealing with a specific ecotype. How hard is it to come up with seed supply of the correct ecotype to do some of these and then how hard is establishment given if you have in natural conditions you have something that's six foot tall that's providing shade and you're, you're starting from scratch with some of these species and very little rain like I know what species that is it is it hard to to get seed for these sites and is it hard to get these sites established once you have the seeds yeah, uh, that's definitely a challenge um, is seed availability. And a lot of the research that it's actually a really new line of re- it's an ecological restoration. It's a new line of work. I think in agriculture, it's it's been going on for a while, but that local seed source and um, yeah, ecotype and, and all that stuff plays a huge role in long-term success or long-term you know, viability of, of these species. So that's a challenge. Um, there's, there's like three big seed companies out in Wyoming. Um, one's in Salt Lake city, one's in Denver and and one's in Boise. So none of them are actually in Wyoming, but that's where you'd be getting your seed from. Mm -hmm. Um, I always try to work with them and see if I can get something pretty local. Oftentimes I'll collect seed in Wyoming or collect seed in Idaho or something like that. Um, but yeah, sometimes, if I see something and it's coming from like South Texas, I just say I'm skipping that this year and I'll, I'll try to find something different. Um, but then the, what's, what's been cool. So the Bureau of land management, they're the largest purchaser of seeds in the Western United States States, and they have a seeds of success program. So they're putting a lot of research and trying to do investments with it. Um, in Wyoming with the abandoned mine lands program, um, that they've actually gave a big chunk of money to the nature conservancy. So the, the nature conservancy is doing some of this amazing research up in Lander, Wyoming, where they're collecting 
local seeds specific for, for projects. So it's not like, um, they're, they're major commercial yet, but mm-hmm. I, there, there's a lot of these little pop-up seed companies that are, are starting to happen out there and what have you. But that's definitely one of the biggest challenges that, that we have is, is finding available seed. And then, you know, you, you find them, I don't know that this past November, I was putting back together this coal mine out in Wyoming. Um, and literally in the middle of nowhere. And I, I, I have this like fascination. I want to grow taper tips, hawksbeer. It's this, this flower that, um, sage grouse love in their diet. I cannot find that seed anywhere. I don't even know how to grow it. I, I wanted to get it to see how I could grow it. And, um, I, that's not, I, I just can't find it. So it's, that's a challenge. And I, I is, is am, anyone I, else even trying to do that as well that you know um, of? The Wyoming abandoned mine lands program, uh, this guy, Josh Oakley, there's their vegetation coordinator. He is going gangbusters trying to get seed programs up and getting money generated from this bipartisan infrastructure bill to, to get resources in place to, to get this going. Um, and then, yeah, I'm actually going down to the national native seed conference in DC, uh, in late March to, to speak at that. And I'm hoping I can, yeah, work with some of these government groups and, and figure out how to, yeah, how to do this moving forward. Um, I think that there's probably a a lot of opportunities working with, with tribes and, um, you know, other groups. I could actually see that being a, a big opportunity for private landowners. If, um, you know, part of their land became seed banks that they could, you know, grow pollinator habitat for part of the year and then harvest the seed and, and sell it to industry would be pretty sweet. So yeah, there, there's, that's a, that's a hurdle for sure. Um, but I, I think that there is more and more research being done out there. And, um, right now I think that the problems with it are, are being driven home to the, the correct people from government and, and other areas. So I, I'm hoping that yeah, yeah, here in the near future, we start seeing a lot of this get solved. Awesome. And you'll see Tom in DC. Yeah. Exactly. That was uh, going to be the last thing I said today was, um, there is this native seed conference that's in DC. The dates are, I had it pulled up here, uh, March 27th through March 30th. And, um, and you'll, you could see Mike speak there. You can see me. I'm speaking on a panel with some people who are way smarter than me when it comes to native seeds, but I'm, I'm thankful to be invited because I get lumped in with all those smart people. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's a lot of great presentations that happen there. It's the first time they did it since 2017. Wow. Nice. So, um, but that should be good if you're in, uh, in the industry or not, it's um, but there's a lot of uh, uh, university professors that speak at this, and and industry professionals, and a lot of people working for federal and state government agencies talking about, hey, how what can we do to kind of bolster this this national seed supply um, regionally? And I know the Northeast and the Mid Atlantic is really looking at the work that's being done out west to try to use that as a model. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and and it's nice to hear you talk about those things. Um, yeah, and I'll I'll even give uh, some of my personal experiences. We were working on this uh, this. Well, we had them on here. Um, There's a program called Monarchs in the Rough that we had been working on for a long time, and part of that was sourcing seed, local ecotype seed, from uh, across the country for these golf courses. And I had a lot of connections across the country, but not enough. And then I had to reach out to all these other places and. Yeah, you get to a place like Wyoming, which I don't know if anyone was in the program, 
but you there wasn't a local ecotype supplier for that and um so at first we were saying hey can we get one for every state or within like a couple hundred miles of each course and it just wasn't possible and uh so we had to use there was a the, i think it's probably the same supplier in utah that was like our regional supplier for I think it was like utah wyoming montana like and and then you'd find out there's a company in south dakota but they had like a a southwest ecotype seed that they had in stock and people well, why are you getting all this seed from south dakota to send out to arizona I'm like because the seed they have is from that area originally so it was uh it was i can feel your pain on that regional supply and how it's just not there in certain it's not even on the east coast it's not completely there for for even the most in-demand species so so for to to go the next step, so say you do you you get the seed, you do the restoration, you get establishment. Is stewardship built into this, and do you get to go back and track data or analyze data from these restoration sites? Um, are they still being monitored once once they're somewhat complete? Yeah, um, so yeah, that's actually one of the things I really got into when I when I was sort of transitioning from my master's to my PhD was environmental monitoring. Um, and that, yeah, the, the reason for that, um, going back to that database I was talking about before there, there was just all sorts of, not to not anybody's fault or anything. It, it was just kind of all over the place. So, um, I developed yeah, several techniques to, to improve monitoring efficiency and, and what have you. But, most of these sites are monitored on an annual basis um, for the life cycle of the restoration. Um, some of these companies have thousands of locations that they're responsible for monitoring. Um, and then the, the BLM won't, they call it rollover or bond release, I guess. Um, they won't release a site until there's, a couple of years of this, the site looking like it's stable and it's got a, a pretty, um, I mean, they've got pretty strict criteria, so they will release it and um, it, it's not required to be monitored again, but yeah, through the life cycle of most of these sites, there's a lot of monitoring that goes on. Um, and uh, you know, uh, that could be the way natural gas works is, is part of it's exploratory where they're, they have, with all this technology coming out, they've got gotten better at placing their wells where they have a really high probability of extracting something. Um, but sometimes it'll sit there for one to three years and they'll see their flowback rates and figure out if, if this is worth, and some of them will, will be there for 50, some, sometimes upwards of a hundred years. Um, other times some might be on, on a location for like three to five years and it goes away. Um, just if, if nothing coming out of the ground there so um that stuff is interesting but yeah most of the monitoring is done during the life cycle of the pad and then when when the um equipment is all moved off that last 15 to 25 percent of the pad will go into to the final stages so they'll, they'll go and recede that little roadway that they left around the pad um and then that, that'll last for several years and assuming that they're keeping the weeds off of it and they have a good stable diverse vegetation community uh the government will sign off on it and they'll, they'll kind of walk away um so not and at that point there's not a ton of monitoring um being done i 
I'd love to see at some point some masters or PhD program go kind of look at that. And um, I mean, that, that, that was that guy, Pete Guernsey, I told you about, he always said, man, you're looking at the wrong timeline. You got to come back a hundred years after you're dead and see what, <laughs> um, what the putting 21 native seeds on this, uh, you know, 6,000 acre expanse that we have um, is doing. So yeah, it'd be, it'd be cool to, to, to do that, but, that they don't really have to. So are there any invasives that are an issue in that area? Like, like for where we're at, it's such a hotbed for invasives. You have any open ground and you're going to get Phragmites or Bradford pear or something like that, that that's taking over. Do you, are they any concerns where you're at? I would imagine it's not as bad, but yeah. So the, um, the big ones are cheatgrass. Like I mentioned before, that's a Bromus tectorum or downy brome. Um, is, is what they call cheatgrass, and that's pretty bad, especially on disturbed sites. Uh, Nevada has like a terrible problem out in the western states, and then parts of Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, Idaho, or, and Montana are getting hit with it. Um, on these sites, this halogeton glomeratus, or they just call it halogeton, that's one of these halophytic or salt loving species. Um, that's pretty bad. It, it doesn't really expand away from disturbed areas, but it will, it will invade a disturbed site. If you are mixing a salt profile in, in that disturbance stage, um, there's something called ventanata. It's another annual grass that looks like it's just moving in from the Dakotas that I know in Northern Wyoming, they're, they're super worried about, um, Japanese brome, Canada thistle, um, there are a couple of the other big ones out there. Um, yeah. And the, the state of Wyoming, it, they just 2020 that they, they have an executive order. It's the governor's invasive species initiative. Uh, but they put like $5 million into the university of Wyoming, a program called imagine it's uh, integrated management of invasive at, or invasive Integrative management of annual grasses invading native ecosystems is what Imagine stands for. But uh, in the, the state, with help from industry, just sunk five million dollars into a, a brand new research program specifically cool. um, targeting invasive okay. annual grasses out there. That's nice to see. I, I love all this research because I'm sure other other parts of the country can come to you for for some of this. Are, are you seeing like other places? Other other areas in the country saying we want to see what work you've done to see if we can make this adaptive to what we're doing over here or how we can use that information. Yeah, um, so the out west, Wyoming was definitely the leader in conservation efforts for greater sage grouse. That that five percent disturbance cap that I talked about before that was adopted by almost some version of that by almost all the other western states. Um, I'm now sitting on a task force with several government and industry folks. Um, this guy that runs the Wyoming wildlife and natural resource trust, it's a state government agency, um, put on a, he led that conservation effort and, um, we're now starting a, a restoration, um, program that will be interagency, interindustry. I am very thankful that I, I was, I'm the only consultant on that group right now. But um, that's our hope is that, is that what we did with conservation out west is going to be adopted um, and, and we can lead the western states mm-hmm. 
forward in restoring these systems. Um, and then, yeah, some of my recent insect stuff, um, I, I was studying how insects respond to oil and gas disturbance, but, um, I actually have something right in Pennsylvania, a pipeline company wants me to write them a white paper on the benefits of diverse native reclamation and restoration rather than traditional erosion control. Um, and I mean, now I'm going to draw back on, on stuff I did way back with Talamy more than the same plant mm-hmm. plants I use. Yes, but it's, it's the same thing. Um, you know, we build native systems and we're going to get the pollinators. We're going to get, um, the birds that eat the, the insects that do the pollinating and, and all that stuff. Uh, so that was kind of cool. I wasn't even really something I, I solicited. Um, I do go around and talk. I, I had another company in North Dakota. Um, I spoke at this pipeline conference in San Antonio last September and some guy from North Dakota pipeline company, um, asked me if I could put together a, basically a layman's guide for private landowners um, in North Dakota to, to help convince them to, yeah, start using native flowers in their mixes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then, yeah, I've gotten some work down in Colorado. So it's, it's growing. It's not, I, I can't say it's everywhere. Or every, every company's doing it, but I, yeah, there is some traction to it. Um, I'd actually just got uh, the biggest natural gas company in Wyoming and the um, the largest pipeline company in the U S just went 50, 50 with me on a, a government grant to, um, to look at how ground dwelling insects are, are responding to mm-hmm. pipeline and well pad disturbances up in, uh, Northwest Wyoming. So, um, yeah, it's exciting to, to see that people are actually starting to, yeah, it's like why, why insects and now, yeah, people are, are, it's, it's getting some traction. I mean, I'm not nowhere near Talamy, but uh, hopefully someday uh, industry-wide people will, will, yeah, will adopt some of this stuff. Well, it, I, it, I think it, yeah, it's feeling its effect yeah. outside of just that industry and that, like they're, the work that they're doing is helping spread that message. If you have ever wor- wondered how native plants and oil or gas industries are connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I for a lot of these – these companies it's almost like a, a why not if you're when you look at the even just the financials of it yeah are you spending or are they spending more money up front um to put in like a, a sage grouse habitat or do something that has more pollinator friendly yeah, de- they definitely are but you can also use that as a i want to say a marketing tool but something that you can point at and say, hey, I know we're doing something that people might frown upon, but look at all this other great stuff we're doing as well. And uh, so that money isn't just wasted. It's it's uh, can be well spent. So, no, it's, uh, yeah, like I said, it's one of those things where, well, with our customers, I some of the ones that are newer to native plants, that's one of the things I point to. Say, hey, you can get a lot of yeah, positive outreach just by doing something like this. Is it more expensive? Sure. But you can point to your customers as a power company or as a um, any kind of industry and say, hey, but we're doing this as well. And this is something we don't have to do it, but we are because we care. And it's not a blanket, do this and we'll plant a tree yep. and it may be somewhere else or whatever. Just, you yep. know, it's it's real, well, real work. Yeah. And that, I mean, one of the ways I've been able to, to kind of be successful there is um, you look at the life cycle of one of these pads at if there's going to be equipment on it for 50 years, that means they've got a, they're monitoring it and managing it for 50 years. Um, 
with that Rocky Mountain bee plant, it does so good at competing with that cheatgrass and with that halogen. And it's it's readily available and be it, it is an annual and it does you know it drops out of the system within three years usually. Um, so with that, I'm, I'm not even that worried about where the seed source is. I'm like, I just really want this to germinate year mm-hmm. one. Um, and it's going to go away probably anyway, but, um, I can go to them and like, Hey, look, this is really not that expensive. Um, and, and if doing this is going to keep you from having to spray halogen and spray cheatgrass and reseed the entire site mm-hmm. three years into the progress, the, the little bit of upfront cost is going to actually probably save tens of thousands of dollars over the life cycle of that pad. If, if you build the foundation, it's like building a house. If you get the foundation right before you put the rest of the house on it, um, it you're going to mm-hmm. not be dealing with reconstructing the whole entire house all over again, um, you know, 10 years after you built it. So I kind of try to look at it that way too, that a, a little bit of upfront yeah. cost and, and thought is actually going to save a ton of money over the, the full life cycle of a, one of these big projects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I do have a question just because I know it. Uh, we, we get a lot of questions about this on the East Coast uh, in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic specifically, and I know it's something that Rutgers is, is doing some research on. But is climate change a factor in your restorations? Like we're seeing here you know, the effects of certain plant material moving a little further north. Um, you know, what's are we restoring for what it is today? Are we restoring what it will be a hundred years from now? Is that are you seeing those effects, or is that a factor in that part of the country right now? Uh, there's definitely a, a growing body of research on that, and I mean, a hundred percent. I, I, I mean, I wonder that with this whole local thing is, is at, at what point is northern New Mexico going to be the ecotype that's acceptable to use in central Wyoming? Yeah, um, but. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely something to consider. I think we're going to see species shifting, um, yeah, farther north, um, and I, I guess I, I would say that it's in the infant stages of research. I can't imagine um, we're, we're not going to see a lot of that kind of come to fruition. But um, yeah, I, I imagine people at this native seed conference are going to be talking about how to adapt for that in the future, but. I'd say it's probably in its infant stages out there. I, I think there's going to be a lot of important conversations mm-hmm. at this seed conference. I think it's yeah. it's it's hitting right at the right time. Um, as far as technology goes, for you to do your job, are you seeing any really cool new uh, like planning or monitoring technology? Like, what's the coolest thing that 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 you're using right now that you're like, I can't believe this exists? Um. Yeah. So when when I was in um, when I transitioned from my master's to my PhD, that, that was, I kind of hit on that before, but, um, just with like the data I'd, I'd get from BP, it was kind of just all over the board. Sometimes it was just for policy. Like if, mm-hmm. if their erosion control policy said you need 70% of 70% ground cover on reclaim area versus reference area, um, I built this sweet data system. I'm like, all right, you put 14 species in this, you seed it, or you just sprayed it with this herbicide on this date um, at this rate. And then your vegetation monitoring tells me that I get the number 58. And I'm like, you're, you're 12% shy of 70, but I don't know if, if that reference site was, was eight, 58% yeah. of eight is really low. Um, 
So I, and the other thing with that was it, it was like field notes. So there was a lot of error on my end of there are potential error on my end of I'm getting 4,000 field notes and I'm typing them into an Excel sheet. Um, did I get fat fingers or something like that? <laughs> yep. Um, I don't know. I mean, sometimes it was funny cause I, I taught a forest and rain soils class. I was mainly rest, uh, research assistant throughout grad school, the two semesters I was, a, or three semesters I was a teaching assistant. And, um, I would see like the initials on some of these field sheets. And I'm like, this, you know, this is the guy that, that got a D and couldn't identify a, a species of grass. If I gave him three weeks to study for it, yeah. and I, I have 400 sites that he did this summer. Um, so I started using digital cameras with GPS units um, to take photos of these sites. So I, then we, we know where the data came from. We had this permanent record and then we started analyzing the, the photos um, which wound up being like 10 times faster in the field. So companies like that. And then I, I could get species specific data and really match this to seed mixes. Um, 2020, I started doing that or 2019, I guess I is when I did it. It was published in 2020, but something similar with drones where we solved this traveling salesman algorithm. And I was able to just fly these drones in the fastest, most optimal route around these locations. Um, what I do with the abandoned mine lands now, a lot of it's just right on my cell phone. So, um, I, I contract with the company Tetra tech, um, the abandoned mine lands gives us these maps. I program this stuff in with that same traveling salesman route. Um, I go out and train them and then they just download this uh, app on their phone and they can just walk a site. Like they're going on a hike instead of bent over on a transect all day and they're taking photos and I can actually just sit on my computer if I'm in New Jersey or if I'm in Wyoming or wherever I happen to be, um, and see this stuff come in. So that's been kind of cool. Um, the, I, I guess in, in that sense, like the, the smartphone is really the, the technology. Yeah. It's like mm -hmm. collecting all this really detailed information out in the field, um, pretty rapidly, which has been kind of cool. And then, um, so I, I guess the, the smartphone is, I know it's not the, probably not the coolest, <laughs> but it's, well, just, it's been. Just the app technology. Yeah. Tom and I use iNaturalist all the time and it's actually come, become pretty important in, mm -hmm. in certain aspects. Just if you're, you're looking for something, you can say, Hey, it is in this area. We can find a natural stand or, or just be able to identify something you're not quite sure on. It's a, uh, it's pretty important. It's it. That is amazing. I hadn't even. I knew it, but I wasn't thinking about that. Like I wasn't yeah. thinking about oh, yeah. that being the answer. I, I, my brain's frazzled. <laughs> I've, I've learned so much. Did you have anything? Oh, uh, I, I was just gonna say, yeah. was there any particular project that you thought was was specifically cool because it had an interesting, uh, um, just character, whether it was animals or wildlife, pollinators, different kinds of plants that uh, that were different that you kind of got to break outside the norm or something like that. Um, yeah, my, my pollinator stuff, my insect stuff that, um, I published one paper in 2020 and then a, a follow-up just came out. Um, or I'm sorry, in 2022 and a follow-up just came out earlier this year and, uh, the first week of 2023. Um, but that was, it was interesting. Um, that guy, Pete Guernsey, I, I was telling you about when, when I started going on these sites, um, I mean, it, it was weird cause I coming from Ptolemy's lab, 
and then going out to Wyoming, my project became data management. And then when I was doing my PhD, I'm like, I want to be a, a field ecologist. I didn't come to be an ecologist. To, so I was doing the data management stuff. And um, anyway, yeah, in like 2018 or 2019, um, I, I finished my PhD in 2020, but it, I, I guess it was the fall of 2018 or the spring of 2019. Jonah Energy, um, they're one of the bigger operators out in Wyoming, they came to the University of Wyoming and they, they gave us a $35,000 check and they said, they gave a note on it and they said, we don't want to be involved in this. We want to help fund Mike's final year of graduate school with the tuition and, and whatever. Um, and we're giving this as a gift. We don't want to be involved in the research. We don't want to like, basically there's a whole note on here. We're not twisting your arm. Do, do what you want. Yeah. Um, and I said, you know what? I want to study insects and I want to, I want to do what I was doing with Ptolemy, you know, 10 years ago. Um, I drive out to the Jonah field. I have a Subaru. Um, and if, if I just remember because the CEO of Jonah energy happened to be at, at, in the Jonah field that day. And I'm walking in to, to check in and he goes, man, the, the university is giving you guys Subarus and I'm like, that's my, my personal vehicle. Um, or he, he was maybe upset that, um, that, that yeah, that we, we didn't have an American made truck or whatever. Um, and then I'm talking to the reclamation guy and the, the reclamation guys explained him to the CEO. Oh, this is the guy that we gave that money to. And he's out here can do some research. You won't mind telling me what your research is. So I, I said, yeah, I'm going to collect insects. And they looked at me like I had like 10 heads and they're like, what, <laughs> like we, we gave you 35 grand and, and you're going to, and I show, I had a sweep net and I had a, a two coolers and uh, I don't know, I bought like 300 bucks of Ziploc bags um, and, and what have you. And I mean, they looked at me like they were just so disappointed and like, this <laughs> is what our money's going to is who is this guy? And I just said, well, you know, you told me you guys didn't want to know what I'm doing anyway, so maybe I shouldn't have told you. And, um, I came back at like four o'clock in the afternoon, and um, the the guy, the CEO, is like, well, what what the hell did you find out there? I said, well, the, you know, the blue cooler is insects I captured on reclaimed sites, and the red cooler is all the reference area, um, and he picks out this bag. It's one of the blue cooler. I mean, it, there was like hundreds of insects in it in the red cooler there. There was nothing. Mm-hmm. Wow. And he goes, you know, we, we have to, every single well pad that we have moving forward, we have to write a pollinator habitat improvement plan, uh, before the Bureau of land management will even consider giving us a, an application, um, or a permit or anything like that. So he's like, you're, you're telling me, we can quantify this stuff. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, and it, it turned from like his attitude towards me at eight o'clock in the morning versus at four thirty this afternoon. Um, man, it, it, it just, I just remember it because then all of a sudden, uh, I saw him speak at the sage grouse meeting not too long after that. He's like, man, like the reclamation guy from our company, he's figuring out how to improve pollinator habitat. I call him up. I, I said, look, like I didn't do that. In, pollinators are cool and all, but like 
I'm into bird food. You got to remember where I came from. Uh, and I, I wanted to see, and we, we found uh, these chrysomylids, they're this leaf beetle. Um, we found 180 times more of them on these reclaimed well pads that Rocky Mountain bee plant is seated on. Um, we don't find any of them in the sagebrush reference system. Well, it turns out from, from weeks five to 10, I had to go to a paper from 1968 where this guy was to um, cutting open the, the um, gizzard of these sage grouse weeks, five to 10, those leaf beetles are like the primary source of protein in in these grounds. So it it wasn't that I, it it was totally unexpected. I mean, there was no insect records up there, so I didn't know what insects I was really going to find, but um, I always just remember that as being one of the highlights of my graduate student career of like, man, this is this freaking idiot driving a, the Subaru of New Jersey plate is, is out on our, our well pads, <laughs> killing bugs. Like he's a fourth grader. Um, and then I, I, I came back. I'm like, no, I mean, we've got 180 times more sage grouse food on these things where we've got 22 times more pollinating insects on these sites. Um, and, and the narrative there, just the way that that switched um, so fast. I just always thought that was pretty cool. You, is that pretty indicative? You think maybe in that area that, maybe have these natural lands that aren't being stewarded or managed or there's not prescribed fires happening that some of the reclamation work is actually a little more beneficial than how some of the natural lands are in, in that respect, as far as pollinators or or habitat. Yeah, I think, I think it definitely can be. Um, I mean, in that, that reference ecosystem, it's decadent, super old sagebrush with our forest and that species are like, prickly paracactus and like cushion flocks and, and these forbs that haven't been grazed out of the system, um, which I'm sure they, they are providing. I mean, these prickly pears do a lot of great stuff where ants are actually a big pollinator of them. Um, but that's not like livestock are, are eating those cactuses or, or other wildlife, but yeah, coming in and putting, um, you know, seven native flowering species and actually getting them all to grow on these little five acre islands, I, I think is really rejuvenating that system. It's kind of cool. Um, it, so yeah. And, and then that's, I mean, uh, yeah, like I said before, it's in some ways, I mean, that's exactly what these guys hope range managers out there that are doing these prescribed burns is that we knock some of this sagebrush back and we see these flowers. So we're really actually just accelerating it sometimes. Um, and then what's been actually neat with this insect stuff is I, I had a, uh, an oil and gas company come to me, God, I don't know, October, November up in, in that same area and said, you know, we, we have some funding. We really want to do offsite, I mean, like not reclaim our own sites, but we, we want to do sage grouse, like offsite mitigation with um, some funding that we have. Can you guide that? Well, now that we have this insect record and I'm going back to this research from the sixties and seventies and, and figuring out what grouse actually eat. I'm like, yeah, we could actually use this now and, and do these seed enhancements. So it's not like it takes a, a five acre well pad or a, a pipeline to come in. We, we're going to go um, hopefully later this year around these sage grouse lecking grounds uh, where, where they breed and, you know, probably 300 to 500 meters off of them to try to create these little, islands of these plants that bring all these insects in 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 hopes that when they're done breeding that they're going to be yeah laying and and hatching um 
in that proximity and uh, yeah, giving these chicks like a nice buffet offsite. So it's been, it, it was like, I didn't expect that, but yeah, this, this company reached out to me um, in the fall and, and they're like, yeah, could that insect stuff that you're doing, um, could we do that? Like not on a well pad? Like, yeah, of course it, it's, that would be awesome. So. <laughs> Is, are prescribed burns a big part of the natural land uh, management in that area as far – you know, as you keep mentioning succession, I had succession written real big in my notes as we were talking and you brought it up before I even had a chance to mention it. Is it – is that a big part or it becoming a larger part now, especially after some of this research? Um, the, the prescribed burns have always been a part of managing these rangelands out there. Um, that's been – that cheatgrass, that's one of the big things with it is these – these natural fires are usually on like a 50 to hundred year cycle that cheatgrass sometimes will, will change that to like a three year cycle. Okay. And it actually just doesn't even allow succession to happen. Um, but yeah, that, that prescribed burning has been a, a major land management tool for, yeah, I, I wouldn't know exactly when that would start, but for well before I came in there. Um, and yeah, now I, I think that that's going to be a thing. I'm, I mean, I would love it if uh, if prescribed burning was, in, in some instances, accompanied with um, seeding enhancement and, and taking native seeds and, and, you know, raking them in after a prescribed burn or something like that would be, I mean, I, I would love to see that. It would be thrilling to me. I think Tom and I need to take a field trip. Like, how do we get yeah. to work this in where we can <laughs> go all over the yeah, country? Yeah. And, yeah, I think we need to, This this should be a TV show. So we can actually like do this. Yeah, on live site. on location. Yeah, live That's, on location. I like that. But and okay. correct yeah, me no, if I'm. I, I'd uh, I'd love to, yeah, to to see if I could get you guys out there someday. And then I'm actually with with Bill. I'm hoping. You know, um, I went out for coffee with Bill the other day, and we were talking about some of this coastal resilience stuff and um, and, and and what have you. So yeah, ho- hopefully I get to work with you guys more and more on some stuff. I would love that. Bill and. That was um, going to be I, my question there was, are you, I know you're originally from New Jersey and you're kind of going back and forth a little bit now, am I right? Or, and you're trying to do yeah. some more work on the East coast. Yeah, you're right. Yep. Oh, very cool. Yeah. We, Sorry. yeah, we'll have to catch up. We'll have to catch up next time you're out here that we can, we can. Yeah, no, I'm here now, but yeah, no, it's even like Stephen Barlow from, from Barlow's. I mean, I, I get a ton of information from him, it's always, I mean, I think folks like you, you, I definitely, I know it's a different ecosystem, but there's just so much to learn. I almost could see, uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll figure it out. Sometime I'll, I'll have to get you out there <laughs> yeah. for a conference and just talk to some of these, uh, these seed companies out, out West about what you guys have going on. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I mean it, it's crazy. I always think like growing up 50 miles South of New York city here, um, the, the business and the the way things are streamlined out here, I, th- I think, is just kind of world class. And then I, I think there's a lot of just optimization stuff of, of how to really structure this into a, a business model out in the Western states. I think there's like a wide open door for, for some of that. But I don't know, maybe someday I'll have, try to get you guys out there to, to talk to some of these big growers out there. I, I would love that. I, that sounds like a plan to me. I would love to see more research on, you know, for the amount of coastal resiliency work we do, and and you think of salt marshes, and it's always about bird habitat or or oyster or or crab 
like I never really have seen any research. I'm sure it exists just about pollinator or insect. Um, you know, one thing that we never found any literature on, but our propagator says every time they go to collect seed, the amount of grasshoppers mm-hmm. that are, are beating them to the, the cordgrass seed. You know, and, and when we look, we can't find anything on that at all. And it's, you know, what, how does that play a part in the ecosystem too? Yeah. So that, I mean, that might be, um, yeah, something I'd like to talk to you guys about. I actually, um, published a paper about grasshopper outbreaks in 2017. One of the professors at university of Wyoming, when I was out there was like the world-class locust and grasshopper guy. Oh, okay. Um, And, um, yeah, maybe that's something I could take my, my knowledge back here. Um, and, and help out with. And then, yeah, I actually technology wise, um, university of Wyoming had this like, um, the, the 3d visualization center, which is like one of only, I think it's one of three now in the country. Um, but yeah, I worked actually with them on a, a project where I was using 3d cameras and, and setting cameras up in, um, wildflower habitat. And then actually sitting in that center with a VR goggle set and, um, uh, and doing my field work in a air conditioned room, just um, <laughs> using VR goggles, uh, tracking insect movement on, on a camera. And I, I liked it cause I wasn't killing the insects. And, um, you know, I, I always think it's the, one of the hard things with insect work is if you're wearing a bright colored shirt, if you're taller than the vegetation, if you've got, you know, sweet smelling deodorant or you got body odor, you, you might be, attracting different insects mm-hmm. for so many reasons aside from the plant. So I just put these black 3d cameras with, with non-reflective lenses on them uh, just to try to be as non-invasive or uh, to, to bias the, the area as minimal as possible. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. That's pretty awesome technology so, right there. But yeah, so I don't know, maybe someday I can, I can share some of my knowledge and then bring your knowledge uh, oh, back with me. Now now I, I I know we joked before the podcast that that we had all day to talk, <laughs> and then we were like didn't think we talked that long. We kind of are, so we <laughs> should probably start to to wrap it up a little bit. I, I'm really enjoying this conversation. We but we always end with the same question, and it's it's a very simple question, but sometimes can be the hardest question, and that is, what is your favorite native plant? I have a hunch we already know what it yeah, is. Yeah, I, I have a feeling, but too. we want to hear like the story about why yeah. why it's your favorite yeah. as well. Um, I, I'm going to stay out West. Uh, I'm big on this Rocky mountain bee plant right now. Um, it's just been, I done a bunch of research on it. I, I think it's a real pretty flower. Um, and I, I actually just the, the color of it against that sage green. Um, I've just got some of these, these photos that I don't, I'll have to take you out to one of these fields one day, but you're driving over this hill and you come down and it almost looks like this field of lavender, but it's, it's Rocky mountain bee plant on a well pad. Um, so that, I'd say that out there. And then, um, I don't know. T- Ptolemy has got me with the, with the white Oak, um, back East. So, um, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, he's still a source of yeah inspiration and, and whatever for me. So I'd say, um, back in, in New Jersey, I, I really enjoy walking around and, and seeing Oaks. Mm-hmm. Cool. Two great choices. Oh, yeah. Two great choices. All right. So we always end with a final thought and this is where we kind of hand you the floor. 
Uh, we give you a couple minutes and you can use it however you want. If you want to summarize, promote something, add something maybe we, we hadn't discussed, the, the floor is all yours to do with, do with it how you want. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. I, I enjoyed being on here. I feel like I could chat with you guys for all day. But, um, yeah, as, as a final thought, I just would say I, we are in the decade on ecosystem restoration. That's the United Nations from 2021 to 2030. Um, I think ecological restoration is a critical tool. Uh, we, we read about all these environmental threats all the time, whether that's pollinator decline, whether that's climate change or, or what have you. Um, again, going back to, to Ptolemy's message um, with this homegrown national park that you can really have an impact of, of starting small in your own backyard. Um, and, and a lot of these concepts don't need to be in your own backyard. I mean, there's stuff all over the globe, whether it's a well pad from oil and gas disturbance, a, a coal mine, um, whether it's just a sodded yard, uh, a park or, or whatever. I mean, I, I think, yeah, the concept mm -hmm. of using native plants and, and just doing having multiple people doing many small things um, will yeah, lead, lead to major positive impacts. Um, and I, I think, yeah, just hopefully um, folks that are listening to this will check out that decade on ecosystem restoration and, and see um, how they could become a ecological restoration um, practitioner themselves. And, and whether that's in their backyard or, at the school that they work at or, or wherever. I, I think there's a lot to be done. So I, I hope, uh, yeah, p people take note of native plants and, uh, yeah, create that healthy planet. Like you guys uh, call your podcast. Uh, very well said. Yeah. Tom, would you like to go? Yeah. Uh, okay. mine was just to push the native seed conference again. Um, and that again is March 27th through the 30th. Uh, there's going to be a huge variety of speakers talking about, all kinds of stuff all over the country and how it relates back to native plants and native seed. And then really that, that crux of availability and creating more availability to meet the supply for some of this demand. Um, so if you are interested in that kind of stuff, I do recommend going to it. I went, I guess that was what, 2017 would be six years ago now. And, um, and it was really eye opening to some of the stuff that's happening, uh, not just in other parts of the country, but our region as well. So, uh, no, I encourage you to go to that if you're able to make time. Uh, for my final thought, uh, I'm having – I'm enjoying realizing how much I don't know. Um, every time I feel comfortable, uh, you know, you get so set into where you are and what you're doing that you forget to look big picture. You're so focused mm -hmm. – uh, you know, just with what's in front of you and then realizing, oh, yeah, there's a whole world. There's a lot of different things going on you know nothing about, <laughs> and there's a lot of fantastic work. But all in all, it all ties together, and it was just a, a – today was a good reminder for me to look much larger sometimes than just our ecosystems, our state, uh, our issues that we're dealing with, our native plants, and just – you know, these are – Wonderful work, wonderful things happening, problems in other parts of the world, but technology and solutions and it's just a, a good reminder to just think big picture sometimes, uh, which I don't always do. And a lot of our guests tend to be local guests, so I loved having this point of view uh, 
from another part of the country that I feel I really need it. So I really enjoyed this conversation. And again, I felt like a little kid because I, I, I wrote so many notes and <laughs> questions as we were going. I agree. We I could have talked to you for for a few more hours, but unfortunately, we we got to a point where we had to wrap it up. But maybe that means there's a part two at some point coming up. So we would definitely love to have you back as a as a future guest as well. Yeah, that'd be great. I agree. I agree. Awesome. So that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Michael Kern, Dr. Michael Kern. Uh, sorry, I missed that the first time. And then um, for more information, you can visit his website, uh, which is www.abnovaecology.com. That's A-B-N-O-V-A-E-C-O-L-O-G-Y.com. Um, and you have a list of like all your or a lot of your publications on there as well, which um, there's some really fascinating stuff. Uh, outside of even what we talked about today. And we'll have it in the show notes as well. So, So, yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. Uh, Big thank you to the Egocentric Plastic Men for contributing our theme music. Uh, Make sure you stream or buy their songs wherever you consume your music. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, or uh, at Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet. And YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We'll uh, do our best to play it on a future episode of The Buzz. And uh, don't forget about the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group, 1,500 members and growing. So you can buy Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. We have our Plant Native Plant t-shirts, Eat Native Plants. Native plants for the birds, all sorts of shirts Plant on there. American plants. Uh, and also on phone cases and baby onesies and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> aprons. Aprons. So, um, and we don't keep any of the profits of that. We give that to organizations that we think are doing a really good job promoting native plants, boost on the ground stuff, um, and where that money will make a, a bigger difference. So we give it to them. And you can listen to our podcast uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcasts. Uh, and if you do us a big, big favor, you leave us a five-star review, write, do a little write-up, you get a shout-out on the buzz. Um, make sure you're subscribed uh, and all your friends are subscribed and all their friends are subscribed. We want this circle to just keep getting bigger and bigger and get more people excited about native plants and what they can do to create a healthy planet. So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. Uh, coming up next, we have a buzz episode where I will lose at this or that. Um, so make sure you tune in. And until then – Keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.